I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read, but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. What are we talking about this week, Harmony? We are talking about the vampire fiction to end and begin all vampire fictions, Carmilla. Yeah, I think this is the first time we're reading a a text written by a dude on the podcast. I think you're right. I'm trying. Oh, well, no. Okay, if we count comic books, if we're counting comic books, we definitely read some dudes. That's true. Yeah. The first traditional, like, text, though. Although the edition that we're going to be at least partially referencing today was edited by Carmen Maria Machado. So we're going to be talking a lot about her sort of takes on Carmilla as well, because she wrote a really dope introduction to the story, as well as some really, by turns, informative, hilarious, and very imaginative uh, editorial notes throughout the, uh, the text. Yes. So to give you all some some backup, I was really into Audible about a year ago, even though it's owned by Amazon. And this was free. The Audible version of Carmilla was free. And so I listened to it and told Maggie that we should read it on the podcast. And so we found out that Carmen Maria Machado had done a version of Carmilla. And she deals a lot with horror and sci-fi and also gayness within her texts and her writing. So we felt like this would be a really cool opportunity. I was like, Maggie, you should get this for your edition. And she did. So she is reading the really cool Carmen Maria Machado edition. And I just audiobooked mine from Audible. And it was cool because David Tennant was there, but it wasn't Carmen Maria Machado. And so I'm really jealous of Maggie. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I mean, to be fair, as like cool as her editions were, like the the actual text of the story didn't change, right? Like she just was able to insert some really valuable commentary. And Harmony also was able to read the introduction. But essentially, Carmilla the story is about a girl... A young woman named Laura who lives in a very remote part of Austria called Styria. And one day, kind of outside of the castle in which she lives with her father, a carriage overturns. And the result of that is that the young lady who is in that carriage ends up staying with Laura and her father for three months while her mother goes on some very important business and it turns out that she's a vampire and she's very like by turns in love with and obsessed with Laura and things kind of go from there. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. So that's basically the story that I read. <laughs> it's really short. Like it's a novella. It's only 130 pages. And like, this is a, my edition is much smaller than a standard sized book. So like it's bite sized, but it packs a punch. Yeah. And you have, that's, 
That's interesting, too, because you have all of Carmen Maria Machado's footnotes and her introduction, which probably adds. Yeah, as well as some really beautiful illustrations as well. (laughs) Yeah, those are pretty. You should put that when we do our Instagram post. You should put the illustrations out. Yeah, I'll, I'll show a couple of them for sure. So, yeah, like that's the story. But like part of what makes this so juicy is the fact that it's very much well. It's got a lot of homoerotic subtext, I guess one could say. And regular Some of it isn't even subtext, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Some of it's just very gay. It's very gay. So the the premise of the introduction is the fact that everyone assumed that Carmilla was just a work of, like, flat fiction that Joseph Lafanu just kind of made this story up. And then it turned out, I want to look up the name of the the doctor who discovered it. Dr. Late discovered a couple of decades ago, I guess now, yeah, in the 70s, in Lefanu's old house, that much of the relationship between Laura and Carmilla was based on a series of letters that he discovered between a woman named Veronica and her doctor, therapist, and it detailed this really deep relationship she had with a woman named Marcia Marin. That relationship was like very tumultuous. And a lot of it is like really reimagined here in Carmilla. But where Lafanu's story is really, it's like a mix of feeling attraction and revulsion simultaneously from Laura as the main character and narrator. The real life story and the real life letters were complicated, but much more a story filled of like absolute love and devotion. So like Lafanu's version of this lesbian romance is a lot more problematic and a lot more negatively nuanced, I guess I would say than some of the like original story between these two women. Which is interesting because Carmilla, traditionally speaking, is viewed as a really positive text for the gay community. And there have been a lot of adaptations and like reclaiming of Carmilla as a, you know, lesbian icon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't think that Machado like refutes that in any way. She more just like points out, here's the quote that I wanted. In her letters to Dr. Fontenot, Veronica wrote specifically of her own desire, not the mix of attraction and repulsion that Lefano repeats over and over. She spoke not of the fear of Carmilla's return, but of a profound desire for it. So like, on the one hand, this is a really important and seminal text for the queer community. And I think that Machado upholds that in a lot of ways. But on the other hand, I do think it's important to read this text with that like layer of nuance to know that like Laura <laughs> as a narrator based on Veronica is sort of untrue in that sense. That like while Veronica and Mercia's like real life relationship did have a lot of sort of... Uh, <laughs> probably fucked up aspects of it. And like Marcia is depicted as a vampire for the reason that she <laughs> did some like really fucked up things in some of her other interpersonal relationships. Like there was a lot of love and devotion there that doesn't necessarily translate to 
the story that Lafanu wrote. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I also think, like, when I was first reading Carmilla, I didn't know any of the history behind it. I knew that it was gay because I was listening to it, and I was like, holy fuck, we're reading a Victorian text, and, like, this is completely gay. Is this gay? And then did some research (laughs) by Wikipedia, and I still, like, with my modern lens, found it problematic in its depiction of lesbian or female loving female relationships and also I think that it's important to note too that even though Marcia was a sometimes possessive and jealous lover Veronica died with a rose in her hand that was sort of like a symbol of her and Marcia's love So she remained devoted for the rest of her life. She was in childbirth and died with this rose in her hand. And another reason that Marcia was depicted as a vampire, I think it's kind of suggested through Machado's introduction, is because of the way that Veronica, in her letters to Dr. Fortunat, like her description of an orgasm is similar to, I, I guess, the way that Lafanu imagined vampirism symptoms, because she talks about some sort of like choking at one point and a pressure. And do you have the exact description? Because it's almost word for word what is in the text. Yeah, so it's it's here. So essentially she says, so I'm going to read, I guess, a little bit of this because I think it's it's relevant. It's not necessarily just like the depiction of vampirism but like it's all sort of tied together so here's a a snippet of veronica's letters i long for the door to open i long to feel her run along my skin like so much smoke i long for her to take me to the place where she went at night together we would not be lonely anymore and then later in the text It says, she spoke of the physicality of arousal, not as metaphor, but as fact, and the tender way the lovers consummated their relationship. My heart beat faster, my breathing rose and fell rapidly. Then a sobbing that rose into a sense of strangulation and turned into a dreadful convulsion, she wrote. Later, I descended the valley of her over and over until neither of us could locate our breath. And though she did not witness the execution of her beloved, she dreamt it. So, um... Then later in the book, and this, hold up, I have this, the big O, she says, is on page 69. That's hilarious. Uh, <laughs> That's this probably is how, intentional. <laughs> this is how Lafanu describes it in the story. So that first passage was from Veronica's letters to the doctor. This is how Lafanu describes it. Sometimes there came a sensation as if a hand was drawn softly along my cheek and neck. Sometimes it was if it as if warm lips kissed me longer and longer and more lovingly as they reached my throat. And there the caress fixed itself. My heart beat faster. My breathing rose and fell rapidly. Then came a sobbing that rolls into a sense of strangulation and turned into a dreadful convulsion at which my senses left me and I became unconscious. And Machado's note is if this isn't an orgasm, nothing is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I guess the important thing there is that he changes it to dreadful, but I still think that like throughout the letters, it seems there is a sense of darkness, but also like love and something beautiful. And I think 
even from my version of Lafanu's story, because there was a quote that I picked out towards the end that I can't find on the internet, so I don't know if it actually exists. I think that's definitely acknowledged, but there is definitely a more negative spin on the story. Also, Machado points out that Lafanu basically like stole the writing, essentially, of Veronica because... Mm-hmm. Laura's the story is told first person and so much of it is lifted from these letters yeah absolutely it was very much an appropriated story and I think it's also important to note that Machado so part of Machado's pushback against this story is that Lafanu highlights some of the like tensions between the two lovers and that happened in real life like Marcia was potentially the cause of a, a suicide and then another young woman that she at least attempted to seduce like there was Which a lot of appears in the story yeah it does appear in the story. <laughs> so like there was like a lot of dark stuff that happened but Lafanu specifically excised all of that dark stuff and left all of the like genuine love they had behind and Machado says in the introduction that she she could have right like she could have rewritten parts of the story she could have added that love back in but she decided not to because she wants readers to grapple with like what Lafanu left out purposefully. And also because she wants, she hopes that one day Veronica and Marcia's story is going to get to have its own life and its own retelling separately from all of this. Yeah. I just felt like that was important to point out that like, that was something she acknowledged in the introduction as well is that she could have added that stuff back in but decided not to because she wants to hold Lafanu accountable um, and as well as give Veronica and Marcia's story a space to breathe outside of Carmilla. Yeah. I have a question. So in reference to what you were just saying, because I couldn't find this quote anywhere on the internet and I, I would think that it would be, but in my version of the story, I wrote it down. There's a quote right towards the end as Laura, like right before they kill Carmilla, the the doctor in the story, who's kind of like Bram Stoker's, what is that doctor's name again? I don't know. There's a doctor in the story who's like basically Bram, Bram Stoker lifted to be a doctor in his story that fights vampires. And (laughs) he's talking about how some vampires fall in love with their victims and, and try to seduce them. And Laura, in my version, says, Why might not a love be true, my heart said, simply because it was excessive. Any being might love, and love to destruction. To destruction, love is infinite, and infinitely good, wherever it is found, whatever its object. Does that exist in the text? I don't think so (laughs) i didn't write that down it's like when they're in the cave right before they kill carmilla when they're in the cave or like the tomb yeah one sec that's okay i was trying to figure it out myself but i couldn't because it's it lists the author as lefanu so i didn't i wouldn't have thought that they would have added anything to the work I like it. (laughs) They did add it. I thought it fit well. But it is a dramatized version, so they might have made some changes. Yeah, I I don't think I see that in my edition. Okay, then. Well, there we go. So that is not actually, that doesn't actually exist. 
But to me, I'm glad that they added it if they did add it because I thought that it gave a really important like positive spin to this relationship, especially because within the beginning of the book, we it's first narrated by by I mean it's always narrated by Laura, but Laura is talking to a therapist about her experience and then we go into her actual tale. Yeah. So like it, just the fact that she's talking to a therapist and she describes some of this, she describes the sed- seduction as being like both alluring, but also like repulsive, I think gives a really negative spin to the relationship in general. And then you have, then you factor in the fact that Carmilla is actually a vampire who actually wants to consume Laura. <laughs> In your version of the story, is she actually talking to a therapist? Because in my yeah. version of the story, she she writes all of this down as a tale, which gets sent to a therapist, and then it ends up in Lafanu's hands. <gasps> okay, so the Audible version is completely different. <laughs> well, yeah. I, it just sounds like it's a, it sounds like you maybe got just like a stage adaptation of the story. I did. That's yeah. what I did. Yeah. 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 So in mine, she's actually talking to the therapist. No, this, this in, in, I guess the like original text, the text edited by Machado, at least, this Uh is all supposed to be like epistolary. So she's just like writing all of this down in her journal, essentially, which ends up in the hands of a therapist. Then the prologue is from Lafanu's perspective, talking about, it it opens by saying, upon a paper attached to the following narrative, Dr. Hasilius has written a rather elaborate note which he accompanies with a reference to his essay on the strange subject with which the manuscript illuminates. So like you're essentially reading like (laughs) Laura's version through Hesselius's like notes through Lafadu to a certain extent. Like it's very, it's very like removed. Meta. Yeah. It's very meta. meta. Very meta. Okay, well, that's important because apparently that influenced a lot of writers. People think it influenced Henry James and the turn of the screw, according to Wikipedia. So (laughs) y'all remember that. That's important to our literary analysis. And I fucked up because my literary analysis is wrong. (laughs) It's not wrong. It's just based on a different version. But like, that's fine. Like the core story is still the same. I do think it's interesting to note, though, and something that Machado talks about at the in her introduction is that this story, while written from Laura's perspective, because of the framing that happens and the fact that it's like being read by somebody after being like read by a therapist, Laura is dead by the time it hits that point. So like, this is her narrative, but you go into it knowing that like she died eventually and only now is her story being sort of resurrected. That's very sad. Yeah, it is. Sad. I don't think she's dead in my version. I mean, like, it's it's weird because it's one of those things where it's like she's dead, but because the story is written in her journal, like it feels it doesn't feel like she's dead, you know, because it's written in her in her perspective the entire time. So like the the framing is the only way that you see that through these like Russian nesting dolls, as Machado describes it. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Okay, so let's talk about the themes. What do you want to start with? I have, what do I have? Let's see. I think it's interesting. Well, okay, we're talking about this a little bit already, but the fact that 
it's a first person female narrator for me was really interesting, but you're also talking about it being a first person female narrator, but through the lens of like two male narrators. Yeah, it's like one of those things where it's like, and this was this method of storytelling was really popular at in like this sort of romantic time period, kind of moving into like the gothic. This was published in 1871 originally, which interestingly, for those of you who don't know, is like 20, 25 years before Dracula came out. So it like really predates it where like a story is framed. Frankenstein does the same thing to a certain extent where it's like, people (laughs) there's commentary at the beginning and end of the story from like two narrators that don't actually have anything to do with the story. So like on the one hand, the core of the story is from a female narrator's perspective, but it is in that sense qualified by the fact that like in theory, two men are therefore like have read this and have decided to put it forth as like something worth reading. Yeah, that's really interesting because this is like the first book that we read through a male author. And we also decided to read a story by Mary Shelley this season for Spooky Season that I think has already aired at this time. Mm-hmm. And we talked about how it was interesting because it was a male narrator in that story. But then we got the tale from a female narrator. But then we had a genderless narrator telling us the tale from her perspective. So it had that same sort of like nesting doll component but also the gender was more diverse in 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 those terms I feel yeah for sure like I said I do think that part of it is like the fact that this was sort of a literary literary norm at the time but this literary norm I think comes from a tradition where like you need some sort of white male presence uh, in like a narrative structure, even if it's on just the outskirts to like approve almost what the story within is, which started really as a tradition from like slave narratives being published with forwards from white authors at the time being like, yes, this is really what happened. And this person really wrote this story and et cetera, et cetera. And then was sort of brought into literature as a way to sort of qualify and center like white male voices in any narrative (laughs) that's horrible not to like dive too far away from that but i wonder like in the case of slave narratives if you have a white male introducing it could that be like do you think you seem like you're slightly knowledgeable on this was that like their way of trying to like bring that person's story to the forefront because they knew it wasn't going to get to the forefront anyway or did it end up just kind of erasing it you from what I remember this this is all coming from a class I took specifically about slave narratives in college but from what I remember for some authors it was a way to like bring the voices forward because there wasn't any way the, there was no publisher at the time that was going to publish a slave narrative just kind of as it was But the necessity with heavy quotes around that of having a white male author sort of like verify those events with an introduction and stuff like that ended up having erasing qualities anyways. Okay. Yeah. I don't remember a ton else on like about sort of that structure and what happened with it and why it came about. But I do know that like it was a tradition started with slave narratives because people refused to publish them otherwise mostly through, you know, deeply, deeply racist beliefs that Black people couldn't learn to read and write, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. That was like a way that authors attempted to like combat that. 
Okay, so I have another question for you. In terms of, for this story, because I, in my version, it's told by Laura herself. How does that change the perspective, do you think, when you have two male authors? Like, how are they changing her storytelling? Are there qualifiers when she is storytelling? No, there no? isn't anything. It, it's, it's, you're supposed to be led to believe that, like, this is just, that, like, the bulk of the story is just a transcription of her letters. Laura's letters. Okay. It's just that there's this, like, one-page prologue at the beginning and a one-page epilogue at the end, essentially, that mm-hmm. is written from Lafanu's perspective, but, like, as a character, almost, like, as a narrator, talking about the fact that, like, he and Heselius, the doctor, had, like, found this story and that, like, Heselius had added, like, a note or whatever attached to it. And that's why Lafanu was interested in the story. So, like, on the one hand, in that sense, it is kind of impossible to tell, I think, as a reader, whether they changed anything in her narrative. But on the other hand, you you are sort of led to believe that, like, the bulk of the narrative is just her journal from her perspective. End of this prologue goes... I was anxious upon discovering this paper to reopen the correspondence commenced by Dr. Heselius so many years before with a person so clever and careful as his informant seems to have been. Much to my regret, however, I found that she had died in the interval. That being said, she probably could have added little to the narrative which she communicates with such fastidious detail in the following pages. Okay. Okay. And then because it's being edited by Carmen Maria Machado, what does that add to the story? Like what are the, throughout the story itself, you said that there are footnotes and stuff. Is there anything that you think, like, does she comment on where Lefanu should have elaborated or about like what a Dickie's being, what sort of reclaiming of the text is going on? So she does a little bit. I think that she adds that note in the beginning about the fact that she didn't change the actual text because she doesn't do a ton of that reclaiming work because she wants readers to like rethink what Lafanu's intentions were here. But there mm. are certain points that I have written down. So just give me one sec to look at my notes where there is some of that pushback. So on page 25, here's the original passage. And then I'll read you part of the note that Machado re- left because it's a really fucking long footnote. <laughs> How do you like our guest? I asked as soon as Madame entered. Tell me all about her. I like her extremely, answered Madame. She is, I almost think, the prettiest creature I ever saw about your age and so gentle and nice. She is absolutely beautiful, added Mademoiselle, who had peeked into the stranger's room. And such a sweet voice, said Madame Paragon. Did you notice the other woman in the carriage, the one who did not get out, inquired Mademoiselle, but only looked from the window? No, we did not see her. Mademoiselle described a hideous black woman with a colored turban on her head who was gazing all the time from the carriage window, grinning sinisterly toward the ladies with gleaming white eyeballs and teeth set as if in a fury. So that's the original text. And then Machado's note starts... Literary scholars have many thoughts about this character who most believe to be the Matska Carmilla inquires about when she regains consciousness. The character's racist and sexist othering is evident. 
She may also maybe the old woman Mademoiselle de la Fontaine talks about in the tale of her cousin the sailor, the one he dreamt about. Most interestingly, Valérie Guyanche suggests in a 2014 paper that Matska, a word which refers to a large cat in Slovenian, Slovakian, Serbian, Romanian, and Hungarian, all language that languages that would have been spoken in Syria during this area during this era, is in fact the large black cat that appears to both Laura and Bertha. This would explain the striking difference between this encounter, when Laura is terrified, and her later dreams of sensual kisses that leave her weakened but not afraid, she writes. If this is the case, then Carmilla may be innocent of the crimes for which she is executed, offering a unique possibility for critical analysis. Whoa! Damn! So Machado does some of that work for sure in like a way to... She brings in other scholars' work, right? Like, as a way to uh, showcase different readings that could be possible and stuff, while also clearly pushing it back against, again, the racist and sexist othering of this character. But, yeah. So, like, that's one way in which she does it. To answer your original question before we dive into that, other ways she does this is she adds in, like, little backstories to some of the side characters. So that she adds in a little ghost story about a serving girl that's mentioned once in the text. Or she gives a backstory to the peddler who comes to sell the girls the the charms to keep them safe from vampires. She adds in a backstory about the general, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, she she adds in a backstory about the general when he first meets Carmilla at the ball and how what the what her mother her mother tells the general in his ear that like convinces him that she actually knows him. So that's the kind of stuff Machado adds. <laughs> okay. All right. There's a lot there that I want to unpack. So first, let's talk about the orientalism going on that Machado brings up if you want to. If unless there's more you want to unpack there. Okay, so let's talk about the Orientalism because that was in my my version as well. And that really got to me, especially because I have a more modern version and we're describing this woman in a turban just sitting there in the back seat, and there doesn't really seem to be a place for it. So I think Machado's analysis about this being the black cat is really, really interesting. But also there's Orientalism, not just with her, but also with the peddler going on. Yes. I was just going to say that's Valerie Gu- Valerie Guion's analysis of it. Machado just oh, cited okay. that in her footnote. I just wanted to be clear about who said what. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting, like this book's version of Othering, especially because even though Lafanu stole this work from a young woman, a young feminist woman who happened to have a lesbian relationship, it still seems like a forward-thinking, and even though it's most certainly problematic, it still seems like a forward-thinking piece for the time. And it just doesn't, like, these these sort of othered mystical, this, these mystical othered characters that only show up one in the text, like, once in the text, don't seem to have a lot of purpose other than just being, like, mystical and other. Like the woman in the carriage, who we never see again. No, or the Mountbank, who is described as having a hunchback and a pointed black beard and beard, and is very much othered for for all of those things as well. Yeah, you're right. This text does read, I think, in a lot more of a modern context than other tales written, you know, in the 1870s, because it does show like at least a seving, a semi-loving like lesbian relationship. But it's definitely these descriptions of 
like the Mount Bank and the Matska that really showcase, I think, the ways in which Lafanu does subscribe to like the really problematic and terrible ideals of his time about about others, <laughs> about other people, people who don't look like him, from like a disability standpoint, from a race standpoint from like this mysticizing standpoint. <laughs> and I think also to me, therefore reinforces and highlights some of the like internalized homophobia Laura is portrayed as feeling in this novel, which I think that you can make the conjecture from what you know about Veronica, just from Machado's introduction that she, I mean, might've struggled with, but like definitely didn't like outwardly seem to necessarily because she was like in this very committed loving relationship yeah, And so it really just, like, reinforces to me the ways in which Lefanu's own, like, prejudices influenced the way he wrote at least the scenes between, like, Laura, especially at the beginning when she's, like, figuring out how she feels about Carmilla, but potentially also these other scenes about the Matska and about the, the Mountbank trying to, like, other them even further. So I think what you're saying, and you can correct me if you're wrong, is that like from a modern perspective, these instances in which like these instances of Orientalism in which he has these throwaway characters who serve basically no purpose in the text, but are there to add a sort of mystical element to it, kind of give us as modern readers like obvious red flags to examine the perspective that this story is told even further uh, and to question it. Yeah, that's absolutely what I'm saying. And I think that's something Machado does by explicitly calling out in like a really academic way, the racism and sexism against the Matska in that first example, but then also in the footbook footnote about the Mount Bank, giving him like an actual like fictional backstory I think is a really interesting, two really interesting and unique ways to push back against those, like that idea of like throwaway characters or like people of different races or abilities from you being throwaway characters who can just be used as like paper dolls for mysticism in the way that Lafanu does. Okay. Okay. That's really interesting. All right. Now, can we look at that I'm, I'm sorry, I forget the, the scholar who originally came up with this idea, but the idea of the, and I can't say the name, is it Moth, Mothska? Motska. Motska. The idea of her being the black cat figure who is actually committing this like secret blood sucking slash seduction during the night. Yeah. Okay. So I can reread that quote again. So the scholar is Valerie Guyant. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing her last name wrong. I think I've pronounced it differently every time I've said it. Uh, so she, and this is like a recent analysis. This came out in a 2014 paper. So she says, she posits essentially that she is the large black cat that appears to Laura and Bertha. And she says, quote, this would explain the striking difference between this encounter when Laura is terrified and her later dreams of sensual kisses that leave her weakened, but not afraid, she writes. If this is the case, then Carmilla may be innocent of the crimes for which she is executed, offering a unique possibility for critical analysis. So part of what Guillaume ends up saying here is that, like, maybe Carmilla ain't the fucking vampire at all. Or if, like, she is, it's not in, like, this malicious, terrifying, frankly, just, like, fucked up way that the black cat figure is. Okay, so this is interesting, too, because there's some storytelling within 
there, there's a weird timeline for this story in general where Laura as a small child I think of like six and in mm-hmm. the story she's 18 as a small child of like six sees this black cat figure but she also see or was it a woman she sees, she sees a, the woman she sees Carmilla oh okay so then later she sees the black cat figure yeah okay and that's that's where the violence comes in okay but then I have another question sorry I know this isn't critical analysis this is just for me to understand Carmilla at one point went during these dreams that Laura is having like goes on this sort of tirade about talking about wanting to like suck Laura up and to eat her that comes across from Laura's perspective as being scary Yes, I don't think I have that one written down, but I can read the passage where Carmilla arrives for the first time. And also, uh, I think the passage where the black cat comes for the first time, if you're interested in that. Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. Um, This is called Maggie and Harmony read Carmilla. (laughs) I know. Well, there's just, there's so much to unpack here. And I do think that that, like, I do think that offering that as an alternative, like, reading is really useful and interesting. The nursery, which I had all to myself, was a large room in the uppermost story of the manor house with a steep oak roof. I can't have been more than six years old the night I awoke and, from my bed, failed to see the nursery maid. Neither was my nurse there, and I thought myself alone. I was not frightened, for I was one of those happy children who are studiously kept in ignorance of ghost stories, of fairy tales, of the lore that makes us cover up our heads when the door cracks suddenly or the flicker of a guttering candle makes the shadow of a bedpost dance upon the wall. I was vexed and insulted at finding myself, I imagined, neglected, and I began to whimper in preparation for a burst of sobs. It was only then that I saw the solemn but very pretty face looking at me from the side of the bed. The young lady was kneeling with her hands under the coverlet. I looked at her with a kind of pleased wonder and ceased whimpering. She caressed me with her hands and lay down beside me on the bed. She drew me towards her, smiling. I felt immediately soothed and fell asleep again. This was the sensation that woke me, as if two needles ran into my breast very deep at the same moment. I cried loudly. The lady started back, her eyes fixed on me, then slipped down upon the floor, and I thought, hid herself under the bed. So then, you know, everyone comes into the room because, like, the kids screamed, blah, blah, blah. And then they look under the bed, and Machado adds this note. Imagine, reader, the beautiful woman snarled up in the bed slats, smelling the nurse's breath as she lifted the bed skirt. So... That's the first encounter that our reader has with Carmilla. And when they meet again as as adults, as young women, um, Carmilla pretends like the same thing happened to her. I think that one of the really compelling, interesting, scary things about this text is all the ways in which Carmilla gaslights Laura, which mm-hmm. starts from that very first meeting of them as adults when Carmilla pretends that Laura visited her as an adult and something very similar happened and that therefore they were like destined to meet because of this dreamscape essentially, Uh, which again was ripped and made much more sinister from Veronica's letters. Yeah. So that's the first time that they meet. Uh, Wait, before, before we go into the cat, I'm sorry, were you going to say, talk about the cat next? No, it's all good. You can go. Okay, before we go into the cat, I also think that it's interesting, too, because it adds a predatory element 
of like pedophilia to the text because Carmilla is first meeting Laura, the object of her love, as a child when she is an almost grown woman. And I think that's interesting because usually traditionally we see it with men, but there is a cultural um, bias where we see gay people as having some sort of relationship to pedophilia because being homosexual is quote unquote wrong. And yeah, I just thought that was worth noting, especially because we don't see that as much, I think, linked to gay women, although we don't see gay women as much too. So that's probably why. Okay, now you may continue. <laughs> I was just going to say that like it is juxtaposed in some ways as being different from when the black cat comes into play. So I think that while the black cat comes into play, like she's very, very, very scared, right? But I do think that a place that I maybe push, maybe push back upon the reading of the black cat and Carmilla as being separate is that when the black cat first shows up, she sees the black cat and she's terrified. She closes her eyes again to try and sort of like get herself back together. She being Laura. And then she sees a figure of a woman immediately afterwards. And then the woman disappears. And then... On top of that, there's another place right after um, words where she wakes up in the middle of the night and is terrified because she sees Carmilla covered in blood, (laughs) just like absolutely doused. And she convinces herself, as she does with most of this, that she's just like dreaming or, or in this case, having a nightmare. But like that is also a scene that like Carmilla specifically really, really scares her and terrifies her because she wakes up and she's there and she's just like drenched in blood and stuff like that so like on the one hand i think it is potentially possible that the black cat and carmilla are separate but then on the other hand i do think that there's textual evidence that like at least circumstantially links them as being the same person i made me feel like a lawyer circumstantial evidence you know (laughs) that's really interesting i do think too we kind of talked about this a little bit uh last year with our episode with Rachel which is called like witches ghosts and the mistress of all things spook or something like that where back in the olden day folklore (laughs) everything mystical witches ghosts vampires were kind of linked within the same mythology and things like I mean we already see vampires transforming into that in modern mythology but I bet and we can look up evidence for this later I bet that it was also like vampires having familiars or vampires being able to transform into animals was maybe a common theme within vampire mythology in general i would say so i mean you also see right like the black cat thing is maybe a little bit out of the box but like you think about vampires and you think because of dracula you think about them transforming into bats so yeah. i feel like that's a <laughs> that's probably part of the folklore for sure yeah yeah so that's interesting, too. I also think, too, though, because Carmilla isn't just feeding on Laura. She's feeding on a bunch of young women within the village. And killing um, them. Yeah. So my fan, my fan fear theory is that maybe, maybe the black cat was feeding on Laura. And then Carmilla saw that and she was like, no, this is mine. I will feed on her, but I have self-control. And then she beat the black cat back. And then Carmilla awoke and saw Carmilla. Uh, no, Laura awoke and saw Carmilla. <laughs> That's my fan theory. That's the only theory I will accept. That is not in you can. 
All right, fair enough. That's that's the that's the new fan theory for sure. For sure, I do want to make sure that we talk about, and I think that this is related to what you're saying. That something that was true, it seems to be from the original letters between Veronica, like their original relationship between Marcia and Veronica, and something that you see a lot in the relationship that occurs between Laura and Carmilla is the fact that Carmilla is very, very possessive. Uh, and I think that it's important to sort of unpack that as well. Yeah. She's possessive and a little obsessive. I have a, I have a, a passage to read if you want to start there, but if you have any thoughts on that, I also we could, we could start there. Let's start on the passage. Cool. I'm going to show you. I'm sorry, my friends, that you can't see it. I'll post this specific one in the Instagram so that you can you can look. But this is the illustration that comes with this passage. Oh, damn. Okay, so people, I'm going to describe it for you. This is harmony narration time. So we've got this beautiful room, and I think that's like a fireplace and glass window with like maybe potions on top of it and then there's these wonderful ornate curtains and then you see see Laura looking like Rapunzel her hair is like way past her waist and she's got this like Cinderella like dress on with bows and then you see a woman and she's got light she's got fair hair and then you see a woman with dark hair dressed all in black coming like behind Laura and kissing her neck as Laura like leans into it and she's stroking her her collarbone Carmilla is the woman dressed in darkness. Which it's is beautiful. Like in the story where Laura finds the most bites or like feels the most bites. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a very very beautiful and very sensual and also a little scary uh, all in one illustration. But here's the passage. So this happens right after they find the picture of Mercala, the Countess Karnstein, who spoiler alert is Carmilla like 150 years ago. And it says, And so you were thinking of the night I came here, she almost whispered. Are you glad I came? Delighted, dear Carmilla, I answered. And you asked for the picture you think like me to hang in your room, she murmured with a sigh as she drew her arm closer to my waist and let her pretty head sink upon my shoulder. How romantic you are, Carmilla, I said. Whenever you tell me your story, it will be made up chiefly of one great romance. She kissed me silently. I am sure, Carmilla, you have been in love, that there is at this moment an affair of the heart going on. I have been in love with no one and never shall, she whispered, unless it should be with you. How beautiful she looked in the moonlight. Shy and strange was the look with which she quickly hid her face in my neck and hair with tumultuous sighs that almost turned to sobs. She pressed in mine a hand that trembled. Her soft cheek was glowing against my own. Darling, darling, she murmured. I live in you, and you would die for me. I love you so. I started from her. She was gazing on me with eyes from which all fire, all meaning had flown. Her face was colorful and apathetic. So, like, this is simultaneously one of those scenes where it's, like, so intensely gay. but But it's also, like not okay either like i love you and you would die for me hello yeah yeah there's i think multiple times in which she says that but i may be wrong i i think that's the only time she says that sentence explicitly in this version of the novel and it scares laura but there's other sentiments similar to that that laura like it's also 
sort of creeped out by. And some of it is like internalized homophobia. Like there's a scene at the beginning of the novel when Carmilla first starts to approach her and Laura like doesn't understand because she's been so conditioned to think that romance just happens between a man and a woman that like she's essentially since that she, she like has this panic where she's like is Carmilla like dressing up as a boy like is that <laughs> what's happening here like am I being seduced in this way and then she throws that away and she's like no like we're just really good friends <laughs> and then they like move forward so like some of it at the beginning is like such deep <laughs> internalized homophobia that like she can't wrap her mind around what's going on mm-hmm. and that's like where some of the like repulsion comes from initially that Machado wants you to push back against as a reader and then some of it gets more complicated and seems like this I think where it's like Laura is accepting of this love until it hits that point where it's fucked up right like yeah. until it's like wait what did you just say like I would die for you like <laughs> I guess that's something I get to say to you but that's not a that's not a conjecture you can make about my feelings for you yeah yeah this idea of possession so I wonder, and because I don't have the text, it's a little bit hard, but the doctor, the doctor that comes in, when he's describing this sort of vampiric condition, he talks about that. He talks about this possessiveness and this romantic obsession and this seduction. And I wonder if in the text, the original text, Lafanu never pushes back against that. Because in so, mine, he did a little bit. So, or she did. Laura did. Yeah. So in my text... Something that I think is, so I'm looking right now at this scene. It goes down a little bit differently Hmm. because instead of talking about any of this with Laura there, none of this, those scenes that you're describing happen. Instead, (laughs) it's something that you understand that the doctor and her father talk about separately from Laura. And then they deliberately keep her in the dark about it. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's fucked up. Poor little Laura. It is fucked up. It. I'm trying to. I'm trying to see like the. Okay. So here's here's the place. Um, this is just after the doctor's left. The doctor essentially says something like, uh, "I shall have to ask your opinion upon another patient." My father continued, whose symptoms slightly resemble those of my daughter, which have just been detailed to you. Blah blah blah. Like the doctor's going to come back and like see Carmilla, whatever. Mm-hmm. So he talks to the doctor, and this is towards the end when they're in the tomb. What I'm referring to. Oh. Yeah. Okay. That's not where I'm at then. Hold on. This is when the doctor doctor comes to the house. Yeah, yeah. So when in the tomb, in my version, the doctor outlines Carmilla as having, like, being a vampire or just, like, vampires in general as, like, becoming obsessed and falling in love with almost and seducing or thinking that they're falling in love with and seducing their prey. And that's right around where that quote I read earlier came from. 90% of the end of my story is literally just the general telling the story of what happened to Bertha. Yeah, that that tracks. That tracks. (laughs) That tracks with me as well. Yeah, poor general. You know, I do think But while I'm looking for this, though, I do think it is worth noting that like the doctor and her father did purposefully keep Laura in the dark for as long as possible about what was happening. When Laura asks her father point blank, 
mm-hmm. like what the doctor said, what it meant, whether she's going to die. It's the only time her father ever gets cross with her. He's like, don't ask me any questions. I'll tell you in two days when I know more, like you're going to be fine. It's just going to be okay. And I think that was really interesting. Also juxtaposed or married with the fact that for a long time, Laura didn't say anything about her symptoms, especially to her father, because he thought she thought he was going to laugh and wouldn't believe her. Mm-hmm. And instead ends up telling her madam and the mademoiselle who take care of her kind of what's happening. Um, which I think then again, paired with the scene where Carmilla goes missing for the first time and her father plays it off as it's just like, oh, you're just sleepwalking. Like, obviously nothing bad happened to you. Like, yeah. all of this put together paints, like, this really sinister picture of, like, mental health and healthcare, generally speaking, for women in the late 1800s. Yeah, okay. So while Maggie's looking for that passage, um, I'll kind of talk about this. One of the things that struck me reading this book and continues to strike me when I read um, books from this era and even later, like right now I'm going through the Anne of Green Gables series. So those go up into like almost the 1920s, but this still kind of exists where 18 year old women are considered girls who need to be like protected. And it's just, it's really amazing compared to today where, you know, you turn 18 and you can vote, you can go buy cigarettes, you're sent off to college and like, Yes, you're still a kid, but like the cultural consciousness is, but you're not a kid anymore, right? You're just young, like you are an adult. Um, And even though I think it's like in some ways kind of cool that people are like, yeah, you're still a kid. Because I think brain wise, uh, most people at 18 are still children. I also think that there is this like weird sort of shelter, sheltering of young women where they are children until, you know, in later years, they're like in their mid 20s and able to provide for themselves. Or at this time, they're children until they go on to their husbands. And then they're like, just kind of a step up from children because they're homemakers or, you know, um, mistresses of the house. And that's just really fucked up. It also kind of brings me like this, I- this idea that like women can't have any sort of agency. Um, it it just never really goes away. It also kind of brings me to this idea of girlhood that's played out throughout this story. Um, mm-hmm. I have a quote here called "Girl" from that come from comes from Carmilla herself. Girls are caterpillars while they live in the world to be finally butterflies when the summer comes. But in the meantime, there are grubs and larvae. Don't you see? Each with their peculiar propensities, necessities, and structure. I thought that was really interesting in terms of like, as Machado points out, this being a story about girlhood and sexuality and then like kind of a coming of age story mm-hmm. in some ways because Laura is so very innocent um, and is kind of like the straight girl archetype who's being seduced by this wicked lesbian girl. But that quote is interesting paired with this idea of sheltering. Because in Carmilla's world, the girls do become butterflies, right? They get the freedom to fly and to become full woman and to have some sort of agency over themselves, which really is robbed of them in this cultural context that we are exploring within this novel. All right, Miss Mags, have you found it? I found, I think that the um, way that events are described in this version of the novel is a bit different than the 
way that you read it. <laughs> Not like dramatization. A, so the doctor yeah. never outlines what va- like vampires' obsessions. So there's so the essentially what's happening here is the general is talking about symptoms that a different doctor described to him about his daughter, and then he discovers for himself that Carmilla's a vampire. Hmm. So it starts It starts here. The consultation then left me precisely where I was. I walked out into the grounds all but distracted. The doctor from Graz in 10 or 15 minutes overtook me. He apologized for having followed me, but said that he could not conscientiously take his leave without a few more words. He took... He, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> he told me that he could not be mistaken. No natural disease exhibited the same symptoms. Death was already very near. There remained, however, a day, possibly two, of life. If the fatal seizure were at once arrested with great care and skill... Her strength might possibly return, but all hung now upon the confines of the irrevocable. One more assault might extinguish, extinguish the last spark of vitality, which is every moment ready to die. So then they're talking about like the seizure, essentially. Um, and then we get later in the story. The clergyman was absent. So I, re- so I read the letter by myself. At another time or in an, another case, it might have provoked my ridicule. But into what quackeries will people... Will not people rush for a last chance where all accustomed means have failed and the life of the loved one is at stake? Nothing could have been more absurd than the learned man's letter. It was monstrous enough to have consigned him to a madhouse. He said that the patient was suffering from the visits of a vampire. The punctures she described as having occurring near the throat were, he insisted, the insertion of those two long, thin, and sharp teeth, which, it is well known, are peculiar to vampires. And there could be no doubt, he added, as to the well-defined presence of the small livid mark, which all concurred in describing as at as that induced by the demon's lips. Every symptom described by the sufferer was in exact conformity with those recorded in every case of a similar visitation. Uh, so the general decides that it's better to, like, look for himself before, like, resigning him. Um and he says, I concealed myself in the dark dressing room that opened upon the poor patient's room in which a candle was burning and watched there till she fell fast asleep. I stood at the door, peeping through the small crevice with my sword laid on the table beside me as my directions prescribed until at a little after one o'clock, I saw a large black object, very ill-defined, crawl over the foot of the bed and spread, swiftly spread itself up to the poor girl's throat where it swelled into a great palpitating mass. Um, he attacks it. It becomes Malarca. And that's really all we get about, like, the nature of vampirism. (laughs) Okay. Okay, interesting. Huh. All right. I'm confused. So, in my version, there is a doctor that is called in after the initial doctor, right? And he, like, believes in vampires. And I thought that he was the same guy as Baron Bonberg, who comes in at the end. (laughs) I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay. Or maybe I misunderstood that. I mean, Baron Von Berg does come in at the end, but like there's only ever one doctor that visits uh, Carmilla and uh, Laura, mm-hmm. and he does his initial assessment and then doesn't come back. And then uh, the general shows up, and then it's like the general show for like 40 pages. <laughs> okay. Interesting. All right. I forget what my initial question was and why I asked you about that. Oh, I think we were talking about... It was about the possession aspect. Okay, interesting. So in my story, they talk about vampires being possessive, which is maybe just added in by my audible dramatists. (laughs) 
<laughs> what yeah. else do you want to talk about, Miss Maggie? I don't know. You talked in your notes, you talked about, um, we were kind of already talking about this, the mental health of women and doctors not believing women. Um, so we kind of addressed oh, yeah. that a little bit with agency. Oh yeah, that was just the that was just the the passages that I, I had quotes for. Do we want to talk? I understand. Do we want to talk explicitly the fact that like Carmilla is a gay woman who is depicted as a vampire and why that could be explicitly harmful to images of gay women? I think it's really interesting that Machado chose this book to do because we had read in the Dream House earlier this season. And that depicts an abusive relationship between two women. And mm-hmm. I felt like there were parallels with that within Carmilla. But also, I don't know how I feel about Carmilla being possessive in this way and also a villain. Yeah, yeah. I think that, like, it, like she was described as a demon, right? Like, all of this is ultimately, I think, done to demonize this, like, relationship that she has with Laura ultimately, you know, and like she's described very vividly in vampiric incidences as well. Like she's constantly covered in blood. She's referred to as being a demon when she dies, when they kill her, she's found in a casket filled of like seven inches of blood that she's just like naked and laying in while they spear her through her heart, which there's a very wild illustration for in my book. And so like, I feel like it's, explicitly harmful because it, it it's explicitly like making Carmilla out to be the demon here because she's preying on these like innocent straight girls essentially and like either quote unquote turning them gay to a certain extent in Laura's case because like they do have this relationship or she drives the general's daughter to suicide like uh or to like death like she's just preying on these on these girls and like it just makes lesbianism i guess in that sense just seem like such a predatory awful abnormal thing which is interesting too because even though it was considered abnormal i think from what i've read about this time um gay relationships in general just weren't taken seriously like they weren't real relationships especially when they had to do like especially when it was women like the conception that women could have sexual desire just wasn't there yeah so this is i think where you see some of the shifting between some of the like looser laced ideas that were happening about homosexuality i guess i would say and just like propriety in general in like the mid 1800s versus like that later like later 1800s with very um strict like victorian morals about what was and wasn't okay and stuff like i think that this is one of those like cultural precursors where you start to see that shift a little bit okay yeah interesting shifting attitudes i wonder too um I wonder how much sexuality itself was like being studied within psychology at this time and whether or not, I mean, Freud, I don't think was around yet, but I wonder if there were things that predated him. Oh yeah. Cause he, he wasn't born until 1856 that may have suggested, um, I don't know that sexuality, like homosexuality was deviant based off of some sort of like pseudo psychological reason. I think that was like around at this time. Um, Women could still, even though like there was suggestions that uh, 
like homosexuality just like wasn't a real relationship and in some cases like was tolerated women Mm -hmm. could also still be sent to like the insane asylum essentially for engaging in those relationships so like on the one hand it was like partially slightly more accepting than it was later in the 19th century but on the other hand like there was still I think a lot of demonization in society generally speaking about the fact that like if women showed any sexual desire ever like that was a deviant abnormal thing and it was doubly worse in a lot of cases if it was towards another woman oh my god okay because the greatest sin is to be unwomanly and uh if you love woman then clearly you can't be womanly which i think from modern day narratives is something a lot of people still struggle with when coming to terms with their sexuality so this is where it came from (laughs) and it's fucked up and let's push up back against it For sure. And I also obviously want to qualify the fact that all of that description is like the most sweeping, generic, just like overstatement of what was actually happening in the mid to late 1800s as possible. But it does give at least like some context for like the attitudes of the time. Okay. Uh, Are we finished with Carmilla? Do we want to talk about whether or not it was feminist? Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Is it feminist? I think this version is not, no. I think that there are probably, I haven't seen them yet, but I think that there are most certainly probably feminist adaptations. And the idea of Carmilla as a character in our cultural context is probably more feminist than it is not feminist. But I think the story itself is not feminist. But I do think that it's notable that we have a primarily female, like our primary narration is female. And I think that that is important for this time. And we know that it was, I mean, it sucks because he stole her letters, but we know that like this writing came from a woman who happened to be a feminist, as Machado points out in her introduction and her edit of Carmilla. I agree with you. I think that the original version of the text isn't necessarily feminist, but I think it leaves just enough of a door open that modern adaptations and modern reclaiming of Carmilla probably are, like, really feminist. Um, And I also think it's worth noting that, like, separately but related to that, um, I feel like it's kind of similar with, like, LGBTQ representation to a certain extent, right? Where it's like, this isn't necessarily the, like, great positive (laughs) lesbian rep that you want in the world but it leaves enough of the door open that like later adaptations can come along and reclaim that and make it into a really powerful positive representation and it's also like because there is so little lesbian representation especially during this time i think yeah like i think that's what gives it that door like the fact that it just exists is in some way empowering the fact that it's being talked about even though it's not super positive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think also, like, not to offer too many qualifiers to it, because while the original text isn't positive, especially compared to a lot of other relation, like depictions of homosexual relations at this time, it is comparatively for 1870 a lot more positive than, like, other depictions, which, like, doesn't make it perfect for you know, like a modern reader, a contemporary reader, but like probably was really empowering for a woman who picked up this book, who was interested in women in 1871, you know? Um, yeah. Because they just acknowledged it in a way that like had even a shred of hope in there, you know? Well, I may be a vampirus and a monster, but hey, look, I exist. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think that it's really important, like you were saying, that we push back against that, that we push back against like morsels of representation and things like that. But something Machado also talks about in her introduction that I, I think is worth talking about is that like, and this is something you and I struggle with a lot when we talk about older texts as well, is that it's really hard to separate yourself as a contemporary person with your contemporary sensibilities from reading these texts just within a contemporary lens. And it's hard to like look at what the intention was in 1871 when Lafanu wrote this. And part of the reason this is important is because this is one of the only stories where like, it's not just subtext, right? Like, it is pretty explicitly lesbian sexual. Yes. So you can, you you just like, you can read it like that without making 10 trillion qualifiers about yourself as a contemporary reader in a way that is a lot of times necessary when you're doing queer or even feminist um, readings of other works that were written in this time. Yeah, and to expand upon that, because I think that this is something being talked about even within, like, modern literature, a lot of us, like, to go back to Harry Potter, because it always goes back to Harry Potter when you're talking to me, (laughs) but, like, a lot of us Harry Potter lovers, I know, are really struggling with this now that J.K. Rowling continues to be a horrible person, makes it worse and worse uh, the more she opens her mouth. Like, I think that it is okay. Like, I don't think you have to give up your sensibilities as a modern person in order to relate to where this other person was coming from. It's okay. Like we can still recognize, oh, this is where Orientalism comes into play here. This is where homophobia comes into play. But that doesn't mean that like we can't still see the worth of the text, especially in that time period. I think that it has to be holistic and comprehensive in order to get the most out of the text. For sure. And I think that's especially important for people who like are like us that aren't you know, like academic scholars. I think that Machado's point was more to like that academic scholarship aspect of it, Mm -hmm. where like, sometimes you do like you are expected to put aside your contemporary sensibilities based on what kind of like reading and interpretation you're using and stuff like that. But I think that you're absolutely right that for just like people in general who are reading within engaging texts, even if they're old, it's really worth it to look at it from your contemporary sensibilities, if nothing for the fact that like, it helps you understand where all of these really negative assumptions about other people essentially came from and why they're so fucking baked into our society and like your psyche and why it's really important to like pick them apart and unlearn them because they go back for centuries and you have to dig through those texts to really see where they exist. And that's work that's worth doing. Yes. And I'm not contradicting Machado at all by saying that, but I think it's even more important for contemporaries scholars as well like but I do think that you can do that while recognizing the time period and the limitations that were going on oh for sure and I think that that was like ultimately her point it's just I think more complicated and that like scholarly academic subtext where you have to like really specifically identify the places in which you're coming from like a contemporary standpoint and how that might have shifted if you were a contemporary at that time and stuff like that yeah that's fair. Um, do we, we have, have homework? homework. Oh. <laughs> Jinx. Look at uh, I want to challenge you all to be gay ass vampires, you know, like um, get some purple lipstick, uh, dress in black, and then like 
maybe don't don't like suck energy out because that's not cool but like maybe suck some attention be like i'm here and i'm queer and i'm proud that's my that's my homework my homework i think is to um do some more digging into the backstories of really famous um mythological figures and like the ways they've been represented because this is coming out like right as spooky season is happening um and i think that sometimes you know we talk a lot about cultural appropriation and costumes and stuff for like modern issues and how like you know you shouldn't just appropriate somebody else's culture when you're creating a costume but this does make me think about the ways in which like I never knew before reading this book that like <laughs> vampirism was connected to sort of like an anti-lesbian sent- sentiment. So like I'm I'm interested in looking more into that, not as a way to like critique or push back against anyone else's costume choices, but just like for myself because I didn't I didn't know that like that existed before and I'm curious to see how other mythologies may or may not be related to like stuff like that. And I'd like to know more about that so I can make more informed choices in the future. That's really cool. Yeah. And I think that there could be also like a process of reclaiming too, right? Like it doesn't have to, just because it might be a negative depiction doesn't mean that you can't reclaim it and turn it into something positive. Oh yeah, for sure. Which is totally what the LGBTQ community has done with Carmilla everything. in general. <laughs> oh yeah, Every, everything. For sure, for sure. I just mean that like as a person who likes to know things, I, I want to know. I want to know where those stuff where that stuff comes from so I can recognize and celebrate the work that reclaim of reclaiming in a in a better way you know yeah I agree that's really cool homework I'm gonna definitely try and do that too Maggie not to piggyback off of you but that's awesome everyone should try and do that what are you reading Harmony I am reading uh Anne of Windy Poplars and uh a lot of stuff about ALA freedom of information (laughs) (laughs) what are you reading Maggie Harmony went back to school, for those of you who haven't picked up on it yet. <laughs> I'm technically in between things. I just finished Yajasi's Transcendent Kingdom last night, which was a really good book. And I think the next thing I'm going to pick up is Rebecca Mackay's The Great Believers. Ooh, very fun. Very fun, Maggie. All right. Yeah. Next week. We're is, on is a break. It, oh, yes, we're on break. And it's the end of spooky season, kind of. I mean, it's like, it's like the very end. So like keep celebrating the spooky season. We won't be there to like celebrate it with you, but you should celebrate still. Mm -hmm. And then after that, we're reading Margaret the first. That's right. Maggie's namesake. I wish she was my namesake. (laughs) But yeah, so talk to you guys in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel dash girls dash book dash club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.